The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the passage that Ron just read for us. We're going to follow along in Revelation 3, 7 through 13. As we look at the sixth of the seven letters that Jesus gives to the churches, timeless letters. Since the beginning of human history, people have marked the passage of time in various ways. God himself set the celestial beings, the sun, the moon, and the stars in the heavens, and their celestial motions were the first timepieces and still are timepieces. It says in Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. This rhythm of the passage of time was established right from the start. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And so we have this rhythm of keeping of time. At some point, human ingenuity and technology uh, took over and developed more and more elaborate ways of marking the passage of time. Water clocks, candles with gradations on it. Uh, they, there were... Uh, sundials in which the movement of the sun across the sky would be marked out on the face of the sundial. And pendulum clocks with their escapements uh, gave more and more accurate timekeeping throughout the day. Swiss watches with exquisite internal gears and mechanisms and springs. And then eventually the electronic timekeeping uh, that we have now, quartz uh, watches, um, digital timepieces, Apps on the smartphone that tells me I have another, what, hour to go or something like that? Maybe not that long, but there's my app. Marking time. I say to all preachers, teach us to number our minutes that we may gain a heart of wisdom. <laughs> and even atomic clocks. I wonder if Verizon time is tied to some kind of atomic clock with the va- vibrations of a cesium atom, etc. I don't know, but different ways that technology marks time. But what is Time. What is it really? Physicists call it the fourth dimension. Science fiction writers fantasize about time travel. Philosophers meditate on the significance of time in human culture. Various cultures mark time in different ways. Aged people in nursing homes wonder where all the time went to. How quickly it passed. In Tolkien's uh, book, The Hobbit, the creature Gollum... And Bilbo Baggins engaged in a duel of riddles. And Gollum tried to stump Bilbo with this riddle. This thing all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel. Grinds hard stones to meal. Slays kings, ruins town. And beats high mountain down. The answer to the riddle of course is time. Time devours all things. Time kills birds. And beasts and trees and flowers, all living things eventually die. They pass away as though they never lived at all. Time gnaws iron until all that's left is a pile of rusty powder. Time grinds the hardest stones down along the ocean side. The relentless pounding of waves over centuries erodes the rocks until they are erased entirely. 
Time slays both kings and commoners alike. Their glory fades like the flowers of the fields, here today and gone from all memory tomorrow, in a blink of an eye. Time ruins towns and cities alike. They rise up, up, up from the dust of the earth through human technology and ingenuity and energy and drive. But then they eventually reach their peak and they sink back down into the dust from which they came. And they're covered over with layers of silt and sand and clay. And some of them are discovered centuries later by archaeologists. Time even wears ancient mountains down. Wind and rain efface the hardest rock until it's gone. Well, obviously, Gollum had a very dreary view of what time does and the effects of time. However, though everything under the sun eventually does wear down, get grind, grinds down or dies or comes to an end, yet in Christ, through Christ, time itself has been redeemed. The days of our lives have been redeemed to an eternal purpose. The biblical way, I think, for us to understand time is opportunity. Opportunity. Time is a specific set of providential circumstances orchestrated by God that will never happen in that exact way again. Today, this day, this Sunday is unique. And with this particular day comes a unique set of opportunities. These opportunities worldwide are for the church of Jesus Christ to do eternally significant things. Because there is something in the universe that is not wearing down by time. It's not aging. It's not past its prime. Actually, hasn't even reached its prime yet. Every day makes it more and more glorious... Uh, more and more lofty and grand, more and more intricate and detailed, more and more beautiful and massive. Of course, I'm speaking of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death cannot stop it. This glorious worldwide building project of the church... It's only getting bigger and more glorious and more elaborate and more intricate all the time. Every day, by the sacrificial loving works of the children of God, it rises. Now we know from Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Now, at the end of that same chapter in Ephesians 2, he sets before us this vision of the rising church of Jesus Christ, built by those same good works. It says in Ephesians 2, 21-22, in Christ, the whole building, the spiritual structure, the building, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This incredible eternal building project. At the end of this same book that we're studying this morning, the book of Revelation, we have a, a picture of the final product of all of those centuries of labor. Revelation 21, 9 through 11, the angel said to John the apostle, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
and it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So every day that we live is special, it's unique. It's specially crafted, prepared in eternity past by the mind of God who is sovereign in wisdom, who has a perfect plan and all power to affect his plan. And you're part of it, so am I. And he gives us works to do every day that will shape some specific aspect of the beautiful church of Jesus Christ. Shaping something by our spirit-filled labor. That's the work we have to do. Time then is opportunity. Unique opportunity. Every day. Opportunity. A chance to do something eternally significant with our life of faith, with our knowledge of the word of God, to do something to build the church of Christ. So time is opportunity. In Revelation 3.8, if you look at that verse, Jesus speaks to the church at Philadelphia these amazing words. Behold, I have placed before you an open door which no one can shut. Now I'm going to seek to prove that we should read this statement made to a church 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, as a timeless, living, active word to us today as a church. To walk through the open door of opportunity to serve the living God. To build the church through evangelism and through missions and through spiritual gift ministry, through acts of service, and through discipleship, by prayer, by the ministry of the word, to the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. Unique opportunity, an open door for us to walk through. We have a limited number of days. Every one of them is unique. Every one of them has its open door of opportunity. We're going to study that today. Well, let's get a little bit of bearings now. We're in the sixth of seven letters that the resurrected, glorified, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of the church, has given to all of his churches. The apostle John was in exile in the Isle of Patmos and he heard a voice behind him and he turned and saw a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ moving through seven golden lampstands. And Christ is moving through these lampstands and ministering to them. The lampstands, we are told, represent seven churches. The number seven being a number of perfection, a number of fulfillment. But he has messages to speak, and in his right hand he holds the stars of these churches, which are the messengers of the churches. Some scholars believe that there are actually seven messengers from these churches in exile with John, but that would be set free to go back to their churches. Others just that the letters were going to go. But Jesus has a word to say to each of those seven churches. They were literal churches in space and time in history. But they also represent what Christ has to say universally to every local church in every generation. And at the end of each of those seven letters, we're going to say again later in this message, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is speaking to us today through this letter that he spoke to this actual literal church of Philadelphia so many centuries ago. That's what makes these seven letters so precious. Each of these letters, these seven letters begins with, these are the words of... And then some amazing description of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King of the church, walking among the churches. And usually they begin with words like, I know you, I know your deeds, etc. I know your circumstances, I know your challenges, I know your successes, I know your failures. That's what makes these letters so precious. They give us a glimpse into the mind of Christ as he cares for us as a local church. The glory of the one who writes them 
the specificity of his knowledge of us. The fact that he knows us completely. There's nothing we can, we can't hide from him. He knows. And he searches us with those eyes of blazing fire. And, and nothing is hidden from him. And he's able to speak words of wisdom and, and timeless commands to us. And I believe, as I'm going to say at the end of this message, each church should read all seven of the letters as though they were a powerful message to us from each of those letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is speaking through the Holy Spirit to us today by means of this letter. Now, in this particular case, the sixth letter to Philadelphia, the circumstance of the description is unique compared to the others. Usually, he takes some aspect of the vision that John had in Revelation 1 and uh, cites that one. But this time, he doesn't. He actually goes back to the pages of the Old Testament. Verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what, who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one can open. So he begins by declaring himself to be the one who is holy. The one who is holy. Now, God alone can make this kind of assertion. Because God's holiness, holiness means separation. We should think of it that way. God's holiness is different than the holiness of any of the created beings. God certainly has a perfect separation from all evil and wickedness. He's holy in that regard. Just like the holy angels or the holy saints separated from evil. That's true. But God is also infinitely separated above all created things. He's infinitely above all of the creation. And so he is the Holy One. And his holiness is so powerful. It's such an awesome attribute that it seems to be the focal point of much of heavenly worship. It's like the, the seraphim in Isaiah 6.3. They just can't stop singing and calling out with loud voices about the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They are holy in themselves. The seraphim are separated from all evil. There's no evil in them. They've never done anything evil. But they are celebrating in a triple sort of way the holiness of God, their creator, of the Lord. So also the living creatures before the throne cry the same thing in the next chapter in Revelation 4, verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So Jesus here identifies himself as the Holy One. It really is a claim to deity. Jesus possesses undiminished holiness, not only perfect separation from evil in and of himself, but also he is king over all creation. He also says the one who is true. Jesus claims to be the one who is true. If something's true, it means it lines up accurately with reality, either spiritual reality or physical reality, or both. That which is true, it is authentic, it is real in the heavens and on earth. Satan, by contrast, has crafted his evil empire with lies. He lied to himself about his own power and his own capability. When he thought he would ascend in Isaiah 14 and take over the throne of God. And, and along with that, he lied to the angels that fell with him. Joined with him in his, in his rebellion in heaven and they were cast down, Revelation 12, cast down. We now call them demons. He lied to them. He lied to Adam and Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil saying you will not surely die. And since then he has built a worldwide empire, all of it based on lies. 
And Jesus said in John 8, 44, speaking of Satan, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But everything Jesus has ever said is perfectly true. And it flows from the source of all truth. Jesus is truth and speaks truth. He appears to be powerful because he is powerful. He appears to be glorious because he is glorious. He appears to be sovereign and in charge because he is sovereign and in charge. He appears to be alive after being crucified because he is alive. It's all true. Jesus is holy and true. He is the truth, actually. And he has the key of David, he says. Now, the word key represents authority. He has the right to open and shut. He has that right. He has the right to unlock and swing open a barred door. Wide open. But he also has the right to slam a door shut and lock it. He said in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the key of death and Hades. Specifically here, he has the key of David. And I think what that means is he has the right to sit on David's throne. He is the son of David that was predicted, who would come and reign over all human beings. He is the son of man. He is the son of David. He has the right to sit on David's throne. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the savior of the world because all of that was predicted to be the son of David. And so the very, very first thing that the New Testament teaches us in Matthew 1.1, gives us a very brief genealogy. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the first thing that the New Testament teaches us about Jesus. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Jesus has the right to sit on David's throne. He has the key of David. He is the heir to David's throne. But in Christ, unlike David's throne, which was temporary and symbolic... It was a real throne, but it was symbolic of the glories that would come. Jesus' throne is eternal and glorious in the heavens. For all eternity, he will sit on that throne. He has the key of David. And he has the right to open and close doors. Look at verse 7. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. This is a statement of absolute infinite power and authority. He controls the doors of heaven and earth. If Jesus wants a door open... And Satan and all of his demons and all of the wicked men and women on earth wants to somehow close that door. It cannot be closed. If he opens a door, it stays open. He has that kind of power. Conversely, if Jesus shuts a door, none of those combined powers could do anything to wedge it open even an inch. It's the kind of power and authority Jesus has. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I believe in this way, Jesus has controlled the flow of history. For centuries, he is, you know, the king's heart is like a watercourse in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases. He opens doors, and their wickedness flows in a certain direction. Not in other directions, but in a specific direction to achieve his purposes. This is the way he's sovereign over wicked people. Who don't even acknowledge him. He's opening doors and water flows. Their nature is evil, but it's going to flow in a specific way. This is how he has controlled human history. Now, he has the right also beyond this to determine who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the most important door there is. 
He is the doorkeeper of the kingdom of heaven. And he has the right to say who's going to enter and who will not. He says in Matthew 5.20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what right does he have to make that statement? Oh, he has all rights. He has the right to open and the right to shut. And he said the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes is not enough for heaven. Beyond that, he said to his own disciples in, in uh, Matthew 18, 3, I tell you that unless you are converted, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He has the right to make these kinds of assertions. If Jesus shuts the door of heaven, no one can open it. Like Noah's ark in the days of the flood. And the hand of God alone had the right to shut that door and say, no more can enter the ark. He has the right to do that. So also with the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins, you remember that? The five foolish virgins, they were not ready when the, when the bridegroom came. And they ran off to get the oil, came too late, found the door closed. Remember, they're banging on the door, let us in, let us in. But they were not permitted I never knew you. Go away. And he would not let them enter in. He has that kind of power. He has the right to determine who has access to the throne of God. As I got up here to pray, I was just struck again with the privilege of prayer. It's a great privilege for sinners like us to have access into the throne room of God. Jesus controls that access. It's by him alone that we have access to God. It says in the book of Hebrews that, that we enter into the throne of grace by a new and living way. That is his body. Only by the death of Jesus. It says also in Ephesians 2.18, For through Christ we, both Jews and Gentile believers, have access to the Father by one spirit. He is the door for the sheep by which we enter into the, into the presence of God. So Jesus describes himself as holy and true and having the key of David. And he has the authority to shut. No one can open. And there's the authority to open and no one can shut. He is the one who's talking to us today by the Spirit. How powerful is that? And don't you want to hear what he has to say to this church? I do. What does he say to the church of Philadelphia? Look at verses 8 through 10. He begins with this word, I know your deeds. Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. He begins with the words, I know your deeds. He always begins with this. He starts with the fruit of the tree. He starts with the works. By our fruit, he will know us. Make a tree good, fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, fruit will be bad. Tree is known by its fruit. Jesus starts with the, with the deeds, the works. Now, in this case, he actually says nothing about their deeds, good or bad. We don't know anything about it. But instead, he speaks of the challenges they're facing, specifically from unbelieving Jews, which I'll address in a moment. Then he says, I know you have little strength. This is an accurate evaluation of the church. Oh, church, you have little strength. You're weak. But they know it, and that's part of their actual spiritual strength to some degree. They're not boastful about what a great church they are. They're not a dominant part of the city of Philadelphia. 
They don't have a massive footprint in the life of that pagan place. But they are a faithful outpost, a colony of heaven right there in Philadelphia. The church seems to have been small in number, not very influential. It reminds me of what Paul said to the Corinthian church. Not many of you are wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the lowly things and the weak things and the despised things to exalt his own power and glory. To nullify the things that aren't. So they're, they're a church of small strength. And I think when you know it, when you know that you have little strength, it's just the truth, then you can actually tap into the infinitely greater strength of Almighty God working through you. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults, hardships, in persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I actually would add a little bit of understanding to that statement. I think Paul would agree. When I know that I'm weak and feel myself to be weak and confess my weakness to God in prayer, then I'm actually strong. And so he says, I know that you have little strength. A church that knows that apart from Christ, it can do nothing. Now that's a strong church. He says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That gives a sense of the persecution, the opposition that all these churches were going through. There's been a, a constant pressure. Maybe they're not facing the level of persecution like at Smyrna. Or not even maybe like at Ephesus. But they were under opposition. And they persevered. They didn't give up. They didn't forsake uh, the name of Christ. They refused to cave in. He said, you have kept my command to endure patiently. There is this race we are called on to run to the end. We are to be bold in our witness in a hostile environment. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So that we're called on to persevere. And then the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, we are to run this race marked out before us. We are to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance, with perseverance, the race marked out before us. That's what this is. So this faithful little church refused to drop out. They refused to quit. They kept his word. They kept his command of endurance. And now we come to that verse in verse 8. Look at it again. Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now we've already discussed Jesus' sovereign power over the doors of heaven and earth. He holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut. And he's saying, behold. So there's that idea of I'm unveiling something that perhaps you didn't know. I'm going to show you something you didn't perhaps realize. I have set before you an open door. I'm giving you an opportunity. And no one can shut it. No demon, Satan can't shut it. No human ruler can shut it. It's an open door. So what is this open door? What is the open door he's referring to? Well, I mean, it could be just the door of salvation, as I've been discussing. The right to enter heaven through Christ. He is the door for the sheep. Or in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he said, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter enter through it, enter hell. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So that it could be that open door to heaven. You could think of it that way. But I think more likely, however, it's a door of opportunity to serve Christ. 
to do specific good works that will build his kingdom. Paul uses this kind of ex- uh, uh, expression in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. He says, I'm, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So I think the open door, we should think of first and foremost as opportunities to share Christ evangelistically. The external journey of evangelism and missions. A door into dark places to shine the light of the gospel where it hadn't been shining before. A door of work. So, by the way, that 1 Corinthians 16 statement is amazing insight about the nature of the open door. Paul's excited and motivated to stay on in Ephesus because, number one, God has opened a great door of effective work for me. And number two, I'm excited to stay here because there are many who oppose me. Lots of enemies, lots of oppositions. Huh. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said there's an open door. Yes. Apparently, those aren't mutually exclusive. So, what is the open door? I think we start with human hearts. The hearts of the elect. So, in Acts 16, 14, one of those in Philippi who was listening to the Apostle Paul preach the gospel was a woman named Lydia... She was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Listen to this, Acts 16, uh, 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now there's your open door. It's elect people who are hearing the gospel and they're coming to faith. There's your open door. Paul also requests prayer in a similar way in Colossians 4, 3 and 4. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So the open door is about the gospel message and opportunity and people being responsive to it and the boldness to step up and move through that open door. So the open door represents God's sovereignty over circumstances and providential indicators that the church should move in that direction for evangelism and missions. Indicators. Like you remember when Paul and Silas didn't know where to go next. They're blocked off in in Asia Minor. And then they had a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. That sounds like an open door to me, right? An open door. All the other doors were shut. They couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't go up into Asia. Couldn't go a different place. So they had to go there. Let me give you some examples from church history. In 1949, Douglas MacArthur was ruling over the rebuilding of war-devastated Japan. He urgently called for a thousand missionaries to come and preach Christ there. It's a matter of history. He said, quote, Japan is a spiritual vacuum... And if we don't fill it with Christ, it will be filled with communism. Now, you might think that was an idle threat. What happened in Korea? Just across a short strait of ocean, that country went almost 100% communist before the Korean War. Now it's half communist. So it was a big threat. What was the remedy? According to Douglas MacArthur, the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Well, many Christian workers from many different denominations looked on that as an open door, don't you think? If the potentate of Japan says, we need missionaries, I'm getting on a boat. And many Southern Baptist missionaries went there and just rebuilt, you know, churches and preached the gospel. Just did all kinds of works in Japan. 
As a matter of fact, the Japanese pastor that Christy and I worked with in the church planning effort, um, Hachimandendo Show, uh, the, he was an 82-year-old godly Christian man named Kubo Sensei. This man Kubo, uh, Mr. Kubo, had uh, been in the Imperial Japanese Army and fought against the Americans and the British in the, uh, in the islands and actually in the Philippines. He contracted malaria, which saved his life and his soul. He went back to Japan to be healed and convalesce. He was there when the war ended. The reason I say it saved his soul because his unit got involved in a battle and the Japanese units generally fought till there were no survivors. So he would have fought until he was dead and he wouldn't have known Christ. But in 1950, some Southern Baptist missionaries came to Takamatsu and led him to Christ. It was an open door for him, an open door for them to come do work. And he walked with the Lord ever from 1950 on. Never spoke a word of English to me. So he was a good way for me to learn Japanese language when I had breakfast with him every Wednesday morning. We sat there in silence the first few weeks until I said, I better get going on my Japanese. So, What a great open door that was. Throughout the history of missions, Christians have walked through similar open doors of opportunity to advance the church of Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, there's a great door of openness to the gospel of Ephesus and also great opposition. Those aren't mutually exclusive. That may confuse us, but the open door has to do with responsiveness, people coming to Christ. And generally when that happens, Satan's going to mobilize forces to try to persecute and shut that church down. And so you actually see that rhythm. Lots of fruit, lots of persecution. He calls that an open door. After the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, the Eastern Bloc countries were open for the first time to missionaries, first time in more than a generation. And missionaries, Christian workers, flooded in there. And the gospel spread rapidly and many came to faith in Christ. But there's been recently, especially in Russia, more of a crackdown. It's harder for evangelicals to share the gospel. It's becoming much more difficult. It's much more open in 1990, 91, 92 than it is now. And so you have openness and you have persecution. So also we've seen an open door in terms of the backlash from Islamic extremism. Groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS have created a tremendous disaffection in the heart of many nominal Muslims who are effectively saying, if that's what Islam is, I don't want any part of it. A man wrote a book uh, about this theme called Leaving Islam. They're not necessarily going to Christianity, but they're going to something. And missionaries are frequently there to share the gospel. You see open doors even in some of the, hot, the, um, the uh, refugee crisis that we've seen where we have missionaries and others that are serving in these tent communities and these folks are disconnected from their home culture and their home religion and society and they are open like never before and desperate. Open doors. Pray for open doors for the spread of the gospel. He also speaks in verse 9 about their opposition, the church of Philadelphia. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge I have loved you. Now, this is amazing. This is the second time in these seven letters that Jesus has spoken of the synagogue of Satan, people who claim to be Jews but are not. As I said in the the church at Smyrna, uh, according to Jesus, in the Gospel of John especially, Physical descendants of Abraham who call themselves Jews but who reject Jesus as the Messiah are not truly Jews. That's his attitude. In John 8, 39 through 44, you have this whole discussion between Jesus and his enemies. They said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you'd do the things Abraham did. 
But you're trying to kill me, a man who's told you the truth I heard from God. They said, God is our father. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. Do you hear that? If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from him. He sent me. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. That's a very strong statement, but that is Jesus' assessment of Jews, physical descendants, who do not accept Jesus as Messiah. Paul said the same thing at the end of Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he has only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely out and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he has one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise does not come from men, but from God. Jesus says it straight out. They're not really Jews. They claim to be Jews, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make them come to you, O Gentile converts to Christ. And I'm going to make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, this image would have been very familiar to any careful, zealous, Bible-reading Jew. They thought that that's what was going to happen with the messianic reign over all the Gentile kingdoms. He was going to spread the kingdom of David and of Solomon as far as the ends of the earth. and And the enemies are going to come lick the dust of your feet. Says in Isaiah 49, 23, they will bow down before you with their faces to the ground and they will lick the dust at your feet. Isaiah 49, 23. Isaiah 60, verse 14, the sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Same image. The zealots would have been all over that. What is Jesus doing here? He's saying, you know, actually, the shoe's on the other foot. The unbelieving Jews are going to come and fall at you, O Gentile believers in Christ, and they will fall at your feet and they will acknowledge that I have loved you. It's incredible. It's a picture of vindication, really, from the persecution that they were going through. Now, verse 10 is a promise of protection from suffering. Look at verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you... From the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So Jesus is promising to protect this faithful church in or from the hour of testing that was yet in the future. That would come on the whole earth. This is a fascinating and challenging promise. Let me just start by keeping it simple. Then I'll get a little more complicated. Jesus will protect his church. They will not fail whatever test This is, they will endure through it and make it to the other side because of his sovereign protection. That's a simple promise. However, what is the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth? Now, the words keep you from have been carefully analyzed. Some scholars think this is a prediction of the secret rapture of the church before the great tribulation. In which the Lord will come like a thief in the night and that the book of Revelation, as it's going to begin, especially in chapter 6 and going on, depicts something called the Great Tribulation, which is a terrible time of suffering that will come in a, generally they teach a seven-year period right before the second coming of Christ. And so those that believe, uh, like in the Left Behind series, that the church is going to get raptured out point to this verse. And that may well be. That may well be. Others see it more as a promise to protect his people in the midst of. Not out of or out from, but in the middle of. Somewhat like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a bubble around them. They're in the trial, but it's not harming them in some way. 
So I'm going to keep you through it. I'm going to make a refuge for you in the midst of it. It has to do with Greek words and I'm not going to burden you with it. But at any rate, they will be protected from this. It's possible he's talking about death. And that there is this trial that's going to come on the whole world. And it is appointed to each one of us to, to face death. And after that comes judgment. The reason I say that is because of Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. Listen to this. It's so beautiful. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. That's all about the resurrection of believers. Verse 20. Go, my people. Enter your rooms. Shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. Now that's interesting. So maybe the church will go through the suffering but not be harmed by it in any way. God has always been doing that. Could go either way. It says in verse 21, Behold, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. That actually just harmonizes very well with what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. So just commend all that for your study. If you're going to say, Pastor, do you think that Revelation 3.10 is teaching the secret rapture? I'm going to say, I don't know. What do you think? And then we can have an interesting discussion. In any case, Christ does promise sweet promises to his faithful church in Philadelphia. An open door of fruitful ministry, vindication from their bitter enemies, and protection from the overwhelming trial that's going to sweep the whole earth. Now in verse 11, he commands them, hold fast to what you have. Look what he says, I am coming soon. Hold on or hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The first is the promise of the second coming. I am coming soon. Now... That word soon has been standing over every generation of Christians for 2,000 years. This should not trouble us. Because with the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years like a day. And your life, Psalm 90, is like a mist that appears like an evening watch and then it's over. So either way, he's coming soon. At the very end of this book, Revelation 22, 20... It says, he who testifies to these things, saying, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. That was John back around 90 AD saying, amen, you're coming soon, come Lord Jesus. So every generation of Christian, we have a sense of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And well, we should. But then he says, hold fast. Hold on to what you have until I come. This is clearly a call to courageous perseverance. Now, what is it we have? Well, we'll start with doctrine. We're going to hold on to Christian doctrine. We're going to hold on to the gospel. We're going to hold on, like in the book of Jude, to the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. We're going to contend for it. We're going to hold on to it. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold on to this, brothers and sisters. Hold on to what you have. The scripture, the truth of the gospel. Let's hold on. Let's hold on to Christ. Hebrews 4.14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Or it could be that he's saying, hold on to your crown. Now the crown could be the crown of life. Eternal life. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So at the end of a hard life, 
of fighting and running, a marathon race of fighting the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. At the end of that, that holding on, hold fast, I'll give you the crown of life. Or the crown may refer to rewards, specific rewards that you get for serving Christ faithfully. Paul said to his converts in Thessalonica, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You are our crown. Either way, hold fast until I come. So Christ then makes these promises. A crown, a pillar, and a name. Look at verses 12 and 13. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, as with each of these seven letters, the conquerors are rewarded. The ones who overcome, the ones who fight and win, stand firm to the end. He who overcomes by the power of the Spirit and by the blood of the Lamb. What rewards do they get? Well, other than the crown implied in verse 11, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. You remember at the beginning of the sermon I was saying there's one work that's just every generation getting more, more glorious every day. A little more glorious, a little bigger, a little grander, a little more radiant. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Here he's promising the conquerors, the overcomers, you're going to be a pillar in that temple. Stability. Glory. Like the crown of the pillar is decorated frequently. The top of the, of the pillar would be crowned with some kind of decorations. And, and the thing is beautiful. And it's a picture of stability and permanence. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God and you will never leave it. It's security and glory and honor. You'll have a privileged place. Think about Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. There it's speaking to the Gentiles, the foreigners, the people from other nations who would eventually come to Christ. Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. This is Isaiah 56, 5. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them, give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Do you not see the marvelous consistency of the word of God? Isaiah 56, 5, it's the exact same thing Jesus is promising. To the Gentiles, believers in Christ, Jews as well, who overcome and run this race with endurance, I'm going to make you a pillar and you will never be cut off. Also, he says, I'm going to write the name of my God on you. A sense of ownership. He will be your God and you will be his people. And I'll write the name of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ on you. A sense of ownership. And also the name of Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Total ownership. All right, applications. First, understand the significance of time. My time is almost up. I have one or two more minutes to just apply this. It's not a matter of the timeless, the, the mindless tick-tock, tick-tock of some wristwatch or whatever this app is doing. I don't know how it works, but uh, the way it sweeps the second hand across the face. 
It's not just a matter of that. What is it? It's about opportunity. It's all about opportunity. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. What makes today special? You should ask that every day. This is the day the Lord has made. What good works have you crafted for me personally? What open door have you set before me that I should walk through it? What opportunity does today bring for me to serve him? Now, if you are a non-Christian, there's only one work for you, and that's to believe in the one that God sent. Believe in Jesus. This is an opportunity. You have come to a place where you can hear the gospel. You've already heard parts of it, but let me just say it clearly. The God who made heaven and earth is ruler over all nations. He's made laws by which we are to live our lives. The Ten Commandments, the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. We, we all have violated those laws. We have sinned against Almighty God. We deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. And that death isn't just physical, but it's eternal in hell. We deserve to go to hell. But God in his mercy and in his love sent Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did signs, wonders, miracles that established him as the son of God. But most importantly, he died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place. Our guilt put on him and he died his righteousness given to us as a gift and we live even on judgment day if you will only repent and trust in him you will have eternal life that's the gospel today is an opportunity for you to walk through the door of christ into salvation jesus said in john 5 24 whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned he is crossed over from death to life cross over it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, in the time of my favor, God is saying this to you, in the time of my favor, I heard you, in the day of salvation, I helped, I helped you. Behold, I tell you, now is the time of my favor. Now is the day of salvation. Also, he said in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Now, for you Christians, just seek an open door. Seek an open door for yourself. Ask, where am I where I could be a witness for Christ? Am I a college student? Am I at NC State? Am I at UNC? Am I at Central? Am I at Duke? What opportunity do I have that probably no one else has to reach these particular people? If you are a worker, if you're in the RTP, you're in a hospital around here, you're, you're in a, uh, any kind of job, doesn't matter. You have a mission field there with your co-workers, many of whom are unchurched. We have opportunities every day. Say, Lord, what door have you set before me that I'm supposed to walk through? And then ask for our church. You know, we live in one of the best places in the world to live as an evangelical church. We live in the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, the Triangle area. People are pouring in from all over the country. They want to come live here because of the mild temperatures and because of the economic opportunities and whatever. It doesn't matter. They're coming. And we are among the few Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, evangelistically, fervently active churches in this area. And we, with our sister churches, are called on to reach the people that are pouring into this area. What open door has he put before us? And let's pray for more open doors. Let's pray for, for these, uh, these new uh, apartments and condominiums that are rising that are very expensive. And that people who make a lot more money than we do, and who definitely, most of them, don't have the same worldview we have are going to flood in there. And they have their own swipe cards and the, those doors are locked. Pray for an open door. Pray for a chance to meet some of those people. Think about the underserved parts of the community from over here, African-American, Hispanic communities. Think about refugees, undocumented aliens that come in here. That's a door of opportunity for us to share the gospel. 
Think about unreached people groups like the Gujarati in Morrisville. Think about people that are flooding in this area. And you can't reach them in their country, but they're here now. We can reach them with the gospel. I mean, just to ask God, God, set before this church an open door of opportunity and let us walk through it. Same thing with missions. Let's, be a, let's continue to be a missions-minded church. Thank you for sending me to Cameroon last week. We're going to be sending short-term mission teams to East Asia and to other places. Support them financially. Pray for them. Get to know who's going. Give to the, uh, the Great Commission Fund. Give financially. Let's be a missions-minded church. Adopt unreached pay, uh, people groups and pray for them. Pray for people in North Africa, in the Middle East, in Muslim countries, that the door of the gospel would be opened for them. Close with me, if you would, in prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance we've had to look at this incredible letter to the church at Philadelphia. Help us to take to heart its message, its encouraging message, and to be strengthened in the good works you have for us to do. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for how, Lord Jesus, at great cost, infinite cost to yourself, by your blood, by your body, you opened a door, a new and living way for us into heaven. Father, I pray for those that are lost, that have come here outside of Christ, that they would hear and take to heart the gospel. Help us as a church to be fervently active in spreading the gospel, both in evangelism and in cross-cultural missions. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.